Uh, This morning's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 27, verses 32 through 51. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry Jesus' cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among them by casting lots. And then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, but he can't save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, let me add a good morning to you as well. My name is, is Tim and I serve as, as one of the pastors here. We're, we're glad to have you with us um, But before we jump in and explain um, that text and what is happening um, there with Jesus, let us us pray together. So let me pray for us. Our Father, we pray that you would open the door of our hearts to you. God, whatever we come in with this this week, um, God, we need you. You made us. We are are created for you, um, to enjoy you, to know you, to live for you. And so, God, would you open our eyes to see you in this text, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hearing this text, I have a question. I think it's certainly a question that, that Matthew, this friend of Jesus who wrote this text, would want us to ask. Which is, why would Jesus condescend to us like this? I use that word intentionally, that I was listening to, to a song, a hymn, um, not too long ago, and it used this word, condescend, of, of Jesus, and it, it just grabbed my attention. Now, that's not, when, I, when I think condescending, I, I don't think Jesus. That typically, when I think condescending, I, I think uh, of St. Louis Cardinals fans. Uh, no offense if you are one. Um, but this past week, I, I, was, I was traveling, I walked into a hotel... And uh, I was wearing my, my Cubs hat. And in the hotel lobby was a St. Louis 
Cardinals fan. Now, if you're not aware of this, um, this, this Cubs and the Cardinals, they're bitter, they're bitter rivals with one another. I mean, if you also, I don't know if you know this, but last year, the Cubs won the World Series. If you didn't know, I'd love to talk to you about that if you're not aware. Uh, but so what, what happened um, is I walk in, and the, the previous day had been opening day, and the, the Cardinals beat the Cubs on opening day. And so the Cardinals fan just immediately starts letting me have it. Like, hey, did you watch that game last night? Did you enjoy that game last night? Um, because for a Cardinals fan, um, winning one game puts you back in a position of supremacy and condescension towards the reigning World Series champions. This doesn't make sense, but that's how it, it works. I'm picking, I, a lot of my good friends are Cardinals fans, and we, all, every human being does this. The moment we think we have some reason to stand in superiority over someone else, no matter how irrational it is, we do that. We're condescending, but not in the way that Jesus is. And the reality is this word condescending, it didn't always have um, a negative connotation attached to it. You go to Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, and what you'll find is the, the second definition of condescension is, is this. It's to assume an air of superiority. Right? St. Louis Cardinals fan. But that's the second definition. The first definition is this. It is to descend to a less formal or dignified level, to waive the privileges of rank. And that's what I mean. Why? Why would Jesus waive his privileges of rank like this for us? Why would he condescend to us like this? And at this point you may be thinking, but, but Tim, what, there are lots of stories of, of, of God's coming among human beings and condescending, waving themselves, their, their privileges of ranks, right? The, the Greeks have their stories about Zeus. We have our movies about Thor, right? We all, have, we all tell these stories. Jesus isn't unique. And yet, if, if that's your reaction, you're not taking what Matthew is saying about Jesus seriously here. Jesus, he's not like those other stories. He's very different. And Matthew is intentionally telling the story to show you how Jesus is uh, uh, dwelling among us as what he claimed to be. It's, it's different. He's condescending. And so this morning, I want to I look at that in, in two simple points. The, the first, how Jesus condescended to us. To look at Ma- what Matthew's trying to get us to see. And then secondly, why? Um, how he did it, how he was condescending towards us, and why he was condescending towards us. So first, the how. If you remember, uh, we started preaching through the Gospel of Matthew um, um, over a year ago. And, and the, the Gospel of Matthew begins in, in frankly, an incredibly boring way to us. Right? If you go there, there's this long uh, genealogy where a bunch of people are begatting one another. Right? Abraham begats Isaac. Isaac begats um, Jacob. Jacob begats Judah. And it's just this long genealogy, which is very uninteresting um, to, to us. And yet it would not have been uninteresting to Matthew's original readers. They would have moved from the, to the edge of their seat because Jesus was making a very, or Matthew was making a very specific point with that genealogy, was that, that you can trace Jesus' lineage, he was saying, back to, to David. Jesus is a son of David, which means Jesus is a king. He's a king in a long-lost line that had been forgotten, that had been conquered, and Jesus is reemerged, and he is king. And so all through the Gospel of Matthew, you see this. You see this claim of Jesus being a king, being very important. And right up into the point of Jesus' own trial, it becomes a a focal point of the trial 
of Jesus. It's the central question that Pilate puts to Jesus. Jesus, are you a king? And you have to, to understand, Jesus, he's mostly silent during the trial. The Jesus, he's very unlike us. When he gets attacked, when he gets put on the defensive, he doesn't, he doesn't feel the need to defend himself. He's pretty self-assured. He's pretty at home in his own skin. But finally, there comes a moment when Pilate wants an answer to this question. Jesus, are you, are you a king? And Jesus' answer to that, to Pilate's question, is you have said so. And that answer to me initially, it sounds a little sarcastic. It sounds like what I might say to a Cardinals fan in the hotel lobby, right? Boy, that was a, that was a fun, fun opening night last night, wasn't it? You say so. Right? I mean, it sounds a little sarcastic, but that's not what Jesus is doing here. The English doesn't quite catch what Jesus is saying. But what he's saying to Pilate, when Pilate asked Jesus, are you a king? He's saying, in that answer, yes, but no. Yes, Pilate, I, I'm a king, but I'm not a king like you. See, the reality is Pilate, he, Pilate fears Jesus as a political rival. That Jesus might come in and sweep up, sweep up and take Pilate's power away from him. That Jesus is a guy who could, could cause a political uprising. And so Jesus, Pilate is trying to sift out, is Jesus a political rival to him? But he's not. Jesus is not a, a rival to Pilate. Jesus is a far more powerful king than Pilate will ever imagine. I try to think of a good way to illustrate this. I hope this works. It probably doesn't. But, um, but imagine I'm on a, a softball team with, uh, with a few of my friends, my closest friends. And we're, I'm playing first base. And, and, and during one of the games, Eric, Eric Hosmer, first baseman for the Kansas City Royals, he walks up and he's sitting alongside the fence watching the game. And I start to get nervous. Like, is he going to take my place? Is he going to come in and, and start playing for me? Um, and so I look over and I just ask him, Eric, like, are you going to play in the game? And, and, and he says, No. And, I, and I'm suddenly self-assured, right? Because, okay, I get my, my own place. But the reality is, like, he plays this game at a, a far higher level than I could ever imagine. And my friends would no doubt gladly throw me off the team to get him on the team, right? There's no comparison here. And, and, and so Pilate, to enter into this conversation with Jesus is a bit absurd. This is the king, as he said, as Jesus claimed about himself, this is the king of heaven, the son of God. And Pilate's like, hey, you're not going to take over Jerusalem, are you? Jesus says to Pilate, yes, I'm a king, but not, I'm not a king like anything you know about. If you've, read, if you've been following with us through the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has said, I'm, I'm a king who forgives sin. I'm a king sent from heaven, the Son of God. I, I rule over the universe. Pilate, I'm not your political rival. I, I am your king, Pilate. And yet, despite all Jesus' claims about himself, this local Roman governor, this backwoods political leader, will subject, will subject and crucify Jesus, the Son of God. And before he does that, before Jesus will be crucified, first Pilate hands him over to Roman soldiers to be mocked and to, to, to ha be, had fun with. And Eugene Peterson, um, in the message translation, he depicts the scene like, like this. The soldiers assigned to the governor, assigned to Pilate, took Jesus into Pilate's palace and got the entire brigade together for some fun. They stripped him, dressed him in a red toga. 
They plaited a crown of, from branches of a thorn bush and set it on his head. They put a stick in his right hand for a scepter. Then they knelt before him in mocking reverence. Bravo, king of the Jews, bravo. Then they spit on him and hit him on the head with a stick. And then to finish the, the mocking in the text we read, above Jesus' head on the cross, they put a sign that said, This is Jesus, king of the Jews. Now the reality is maybe Jesus isn't who he said he is. Maybe he made all this up. Maybe Matthew, this friend of Jesus who spent three years of his life with Jesus, who said, guys, I saw all this happen. You have to believe in Jesus. I watched this. I was alongside him for this time. Maybe, all, maybe Matthew hallucinated for three years. Whatever happened, you, you, you have to take Jesus' claims for what he was claiming to be, which is that he was the son of God, the son of, of, of God, the, the king of heaven, who allowed a hapless Roman governor to, sub, to, 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 to crucify him, to put him to death, and for Roman soldiers to mock him as king. That if Jesus is a king, he is the king willing to be mocked. Which makes us ask the question, why? Why would Jesus condescend to us like this? Well, the mocking of Jesus, it doesn't stop there. Uh, crucifixion, it was a purposefully designed execution. It was meant in very intentional ways to humiliate, to shame, to embarrass you, to crush its, its victims. And so you would be, you'd be crucified naked. That's why there are people gambling for Jesus' clothing there. So imagine you're dying naked in, in a public place, people gambling for your clothing. But more than that, crucifixion, it was done alongside public roads so that there would be lots of people who would walk by and see you in this position for a couple reasons. One was so that you would be a warning to them. Don't do whatever that person did. Or Rome will put you where, where they put him. And the other is, is that um, so that others as they walk alongside you could mock you further. So you see this happening with Jesus in verse 39. Those, those passed by, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Now, that, that was something Jesus said. He said, I, he was at the temple. He said, tear this thing down. In three days, I'll, I'll, I'll build it back up. And it was one of the things that, that angered people most about Jesus, which, which might be a little confusing to us. But you have to think this out a little bit. The temple, it was the prized possession of the city of Jerusalem. It was the, the most significant financial uh, investment of a building they built. It was the most beautiful building um, they had, had built. So imagine someone you know, coming to Kansas City and saying, I'm going to tear down you know, the Kauffman Center, or uh, you know, maybe for you guys in the room, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to burn down Arrowhead Stadium. Right? We, would, we would be a little bit angry at that, a little bit offended um, at that. But there's an even more important reason for why people were, were just so offended that Jesus had said this, because this is the temple. This is where you went to worship God. This is God's house. This is where his presence dwelt. It's where you prayed. It's where you went to be assured of God's covenant love towards you. If you wanted to meet with God, this is where you went. And for Jesus to say that this building that took 46 years and is a massive financial investment to build, that, that, that tear this place down and I'll build it back up in three days. It was, to them, it seemed like an arrogant, uh, cruel statement about their most beloved place. And yet everyone misunderstood what Jesus was saying about the temple in two ways. First, Jesus, he's not talking about this building, this temple. When he says, tear this temple down in three days, he's not talking about this building. But secondly, if they actually knew what Jesus was saying, they would have been even more offended. He's making an even more powerful 
claim. That they thought Jesus was saying, hey, take this, this temple that took 46 years to build. You, you, you tear it down, I'll build it back up in three days. Or that would take supernatural power to do. But Jesus was claiming something bigger than that. When he was talking about the temple, and Matthew says later on, um, he's actually talking about his body there. That what Jesus was saying was, is, was take me. Take my body and, and tear it apart. Tear it down. Kill it. And in three days, I'll put it back together and come back to life. And it may be incredibly difficult to build a building and, that took 46 years to build in three days, but it is harder... <laughs> I would say, to come back to life from death than to build a huge building really fast. But even more outrageously, what Jesus was saying there is, is I'm the temple. If you want to meet with God, if you want to pray to God, if you want to experience God, if you want to know God, you have to come to me. I'm the meeting place between man and God now. It's an outrageous claim, but look at him. Look at him now in Matthew 27. Someone who said, I can, I can come back from the grave alive. Someone who said, if you want to meet with God, you have to come to me. That man now hangs helpless from a cross, shamed and crucified and mocked. But Jesus, he's not just the king willing to be mocked. He is power that's powerless. Which pushes the question out to us again, why? Why? Why would Jesus condescend to us like this? But the mocking, it doesn't stop there, it continues. More people come by um, in verse 41. Here's what happens. So also the chief priests, but the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross. Then we will believe in him. And this word, it's save, it's all over God, Matthew's Gospel. In fact, it may, be, it may be one of the most important words in Matthew's gospel. That if you go back to before Jesus was born, Matthew tells us that Mary, um, Jesus' mother, Ma- Mary told Matthew that before Jesus was born, a, an angel came to her and said, this is what you have to name your son. You have to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He's a savior, so name him Jesus. And the name Jesus meant God saves, right? He's a savior, so name him Savior, is what the angel says to Mary. And Matthew tells you all kinds of stories about how he saw Jesus um, saving people, saving blind people from blindness and enabling them to see, saving lame people who couldn't walk, enabling them to walk. He found people who were rejected, forgotten, left behind in society, and he saved them to himself. And now, the one who's, who went around saving everyone else can't save himself. And Jesus is the Savior who, who could not save him, even himself. And listen, I'm not saying that you have to believe in Jesus to, to, to agree with all this, but do you at least see what Matthew, what Jesus thought he was doing on the cross? Jesus claimed to be a king, and yet he was willing to be mocked and condemned by some backwoods Roman governor. That Jesus claimed to have power over death itself, and yet was willing to be held powerless on a cross. Jesus claimed to be able to save anybody from anything, and yet he refused to save himself. Do you see the depth of Jesus' condescension towards us? 
Because our human stories about God, they don't, they don't go. They don't go there. If you read the Greek myths, the Roman myths about their gods, their, their gods always had some flaw that eventually got them into trouble and they ended up um, in prison or dead because they, they had some tragic flaw. But Jesus didn't have a flaw. He didn't, he didn't end up on a cross by accident. He chose it himself. Right? Or the gods, they, they win. Right? Thor gets his hammer and, and knocks stuff down and does his business and wins. Right? That, that's how gods do things. They win or they have some flaw. That's the stories we tell about ourselves. But Jesus is neither. He's not flawed, and he loses on the cross. So why? Why would Jesus condescend to us like this? Well, we've seen the how, but now we're ready for the why. And the reality is one of the, one of the biggest obstacles to believing in God for any person is the, the problem of evil, the problem of suffering, the problem of injustice. And so the problem of evil by those who do not believe in God, it's simple. If, listen, if, if there's a God, he's all good, he's all powerful, which is what the Bible says about God over and over again. He's all good, he's all powerful. And yet, if there's evil, if there's injustice, if there's suffering, then God, he's either not good because he didn't stop it, or he's not powerful because he couldn't. And so therefore, there can be a God that's all good and all powerful and yet have evil Exists. And so that, that's the philosophical side of it. But that's not the power of the argument. The power of the argument is the specifics. It's the images. There's a man named Charles Templeton. He, uh, for a long time, traveled around with Billy Graham, um, preaching the gospel and, and seeing people come to faith through his preaching. But eventually he saw the image of a starving child in Africa on the cover of Life magazine. He decided, I can't be a Christian with that image. Gave up his faith, walked away. Right? It's hard to, It's hard image to... to to ignore. You shouldn't ignore it, right? We got more of those images from Syria this week. I promise you, the rest of your life, there will be more images, more stories to come. And so religious people have tried to, to answer this objection in a couple of ways. One is to say, well, you know what, God? God must have a reason for permitting this evil, but you, you don't know, and you're not smart enough to know, so don't even, don't even try. It's faith. Um, some try to dumb God's power down, right? Well, God, God, he just, he didn't quite see it coming, and, and it was sort of an accident, and he, you know, if he had known it was happening, it would have stopped it, and, and, but if that's, if that's the case, then what confidence can you have in God that he won't, he'll stop it eventually, or that he, one day he can put an end to it, right? If he didn't see this evil coming, what, why should I trust him? Why should I have any sense of confidence in him? So the, we're left with the question, okay, what's the, what is the Bible's answer to the problem of evil? And I, I know you might think it's the first answer, and I wish I could go more further into this this morning, but it, the Bible doesn't give you either of those answers. It's the primary answer to the problem of evil in our world. It doesn't say, you're just too dumb to understand, you just got to have faith. That's not how the Bible's primary answer to the problem of evil. And it doesn't say, God, God didn't see it coming, he was ignorant. Neither one of those answers. The the answer to the problem of evil in the Bible, I would say primarily, is the Psalms. A book of prayers of Christians, of uh, Hebrews, crying out to God, why? How long? Where are you, God? Have you forgotten me? That's what Jesus does from the cross. He quotes Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Christians have a very different answer to the problem of, of evil and to suffering. 
we have the space to question God. What are you doing? What's the point of this? What, what, God, what, what, what's your objective here, right? It's not, it's not be quiet. You can't quiet. No, it's, there's a book of prayers of people wrestling. Why? But more than that, we point not just to the questions, not just to the Psalms, but for Christians, our, our final answer to the problem of evil is it is the cross, Right? We don't have an answer. We point to an image, to a cross, where Jesus condescended for us. So I've told this story before, but it's, it fits perfectly, so forgive me for telling it again. But there's this story um, that Donald Miller tells in his book, Blue Like Jazz, where um, he was at a concert. It was a folk singer um, telling a story about a friend of his who was a Navy, a Navy SEAL. And so Donald Miller said, I can't verify this actually happened, um, but if it didn't happen, it should have happened. Uh, but the SEALs were on a, a rescue mission to rescue hostages and so they fly into some dark removed remote part of the world and they make their way into the prison where the hostages were being held and they stormed this room this dark um, disgusting dank room where hostages had been held for for months and so the seals enter into the room and there are the there are the prisoners hold um, um cowering in the corner and the seals call to them come with us you're free follow us to freedom um, but the hostages wouldn't move they stayed terrified. As so the seals, they stand there a while, not knowing what to do, not knowing how to convince these prisoners to come with them. And, and the full singer says, my, my friend, the seal, begins to um, strip down his armor, takes, puts his gun down, takes his armor off, and goes to, next to the prisoner. He curls down next to them, staying there a while, embracing those prisoners, those hostages, in a way that none of their, uh, their, their hostage takers would have ever embraced them. After a while, he whispers to one of the prisoners and says, um, we're Americans, we're here to rescue you, follow us to freedom. So he gets up and, and, and one by one the hostages begin to, to get out and follow them out to their, their freedom. And again, whether that happened or not, I, I don't know, but, but that is the image of what our response as Christians is to the problem of evil. That whatever we face in life, whatever you are facing in life, whatever would make you cry out to God, why? Whatever threatens to break up your faith or to, to make you question the goodness or the faithfulness of God, in that very place, Jesus, the Son of God, He sits with you on the cross. He's been there. He's gotten down from his throne, he stripped off his robe and his crown. He had it replaced with a crown of thorns and a red toga mocked by Roman soldiers. He condescended into our place of helplessness and prison as hostages to this broken world. And he meets us there to get us out. And so we can ask the question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken us? Because we don't ask it without Jesus asking it alongside us. And so why, why would Jesus condescend to us? First is... So that we could know our cry will always have an answer. Your cry will always have an answer. So cry out. And yet, it's, it's, an, outrageous, it's an outrageous claim. Right? I acknowledge that. Right? How can you say, how can I say that every, every, every piece of suffering, every piece of injustice, um, every piece of evil, it will not be met ultimately by an empty throne, by a universe with no God, or, or even with a silence from God thinking, how dare you ask the question, right? How can we know that our cries will have an answer from God? Well, it's because of what happened next. 
And so Jesus cries out. He cries out Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken us? To meet, to meet us in the place of suffering. But then something else happens in verse 51. Um, it's this. This is after Jesus died. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What does that mean? Why, why is it important that Matthew takes us into the temple and says this curtain, uh, it was ripped in half? Well, earlier I, I said in Jesus' day, if you wanted to go worship God, if you wanted to pray to him, if you wanted to experience him, you had to go to the temple. Um, but it was, a lot of different, it was a lot different than how you and I come to church today in a couple of ways. That first, if you went to the temple, you had to bring a sacrifice with you. And mostly you had to bring an animal with you. And if you were going to meet with God... The animal had to die. Its blood had to be, to be sprinkled onto the altar in order for you to go and meet with God. Because you, right, me, um, we had spent the, the week, um, probably we told a lie. Or probably we had gotten angry with a coworker, with a spouse, or a child. We had done things that we would be embarrassed for anyone else to know. And yet God's there. He knows. He knew you're weak. And you can't just, with the week you led, you can't just walk up and meet with God, a flawed, broken person cannot just walk right up and meet with God. Blood had to be shed for you to meet with God. And so blood had to be shed, and then you could meet with God. And so obviously we don't do that anymore. And most of us, we probably find this idea absurd at best. And not just because blood weirds us out, um, although it does, right? We're, we're just removed from that reality um, so often. But what we re- really reject is that we reject the idea that we are so flawed that blood has to be shed in order for us to meet with God. Why wouldn't God want to meet with us? If something has to die in order for us to meet with, with God, it sounds terrible. Like, we're not that bad, right? Well, if you're thinking that, the temple's, it's about to offend you even more. Um, because even after you, the blood was shed so you could meet with God, um, even when you got up to the altar, there, there was still a, a giant curtain that separated you from where the presence of God was thought to dwell. There's just one more reminder that you, in your state, as you are currently, you're not ready for the presence of God. The curtain's there. It's there for your protection. You, as you are, flawed, broken. You can't meet with God like that. And so these, these two ideas, the blood has to be shed for you and I to meet with God, that even if, even if you get to meet with God, there still has to be a curtain for your protection This cuts against everything, all the cultural assumptions we have about God, which is that God is is love. God wants to meet with me. I can meet with God anywhere. There's no no, uh, distance or there's no barrier between me and and God. God loves me, right? Those are our cultural assumptions. And yet, before you dismiss the idea of the temple, before you dismiss the idea of of the fact that you need blood and, and you need a curtain, at least at least could you see why this might make sense? Now, I would say in our culture, everyone says, or most everyone says, that they believe God loves them. But let me just make the, the question personal. Would you say to me or to anyone, without a shadow of a doubt, that the God, the creator, the universe, loves, loves you? Personally. And can you look me in the eye and say that? Listen, I'm a pastor, and so I, I get into people's lives with a depth that, um, that most of you have with probably close friends and close families, but I'm not convinced hardly anybody thinks God loves them, actually. And it shows. I mean, look at us. 
We create an entire social media platform with, with like buttons and heart buttons designed to give us affirmation, to give us love and, and likes. Look how angry we get with people who just disagree with us on, on Twitter or in person. They have different politics. And it's, you can't have a conversation. There's anger there. There's, there's threats. That all of us, we bought things for appearances, to have what someone else has, to look like someone else. Looks like only to find those things just collect dust on our shelves because they didn't give us what they promised. We work ourselves to the bone to get, um, to get more, to accomplish more, only to have whatever it is we accomplish or whatever it is we make never give us what we're looking for. Look at what we're addicted to. Look at what we run to for meaning. I would just say, could you look around our culture and say, yeah, this is a culture of people who are resting secure in the eternal steadfast love of God. Right? It's almost like there's this, this giant curtain that separates us from, from God's love for us. The reality is, you and I, listen, you and I, we cannot approach God without blood. Without something taking all of these burdens from us and dying in our place. And that's what Matthew is trying to get you to see. That you're always going to be insecure in the love of God if you're trying to approach him without sacrifice, without the blood. If you think God is love without blood, without sacrifice, it shows you don't, you don't understand who God is and you don't understand what love is. Because all love ultimately is substitutionary sacrifice. The only way your family relationships are going to flourish is if you're willing to take the burdens of your family members onto yourself. Their idiosyncrasies, the things they do that, that annoy you, the things they do that frustrate you, when they have financial burdens, when they have health burdens, the only way you can love them is if you begin to, to shoulder their burdens on to yourself, that the only way your marriage can flourish is if you take the burdens of your spouse onto your own shoulders and carry them. All love ultimately is an exchange. And you cannot know or experience love unless someone else is taking your burdens from you. And that's what was happening every time you went to the temple to worship God. Is God had set up this system where he could say, this animal is going to take all of your burdens from you so you can come and meet with me, the animal is your substitution. And so one day God said, enough of that. And he sent his son to enter into our world as a helpless child. To heal us, to save us, to preach good news, to strip himself of his glory. To kneel down next to us and say, quit being a prisoner and follow me to freedom. But the reality is that wasn't enough for us. Because we had our burdens. We had our things that we were carrying. And so Jesus doesn't look at us naively and say, I love you, now all is good, come with me. No, he says, I love you, now start giving to me your flaws. Start giving to me your addiction. Start giving to me the stupid ways that we approach life. Give me everything about you that's wrong. Let me take it on my shoulders. And that's exactly what he's doing on the cross. He's taking our burdens, our iniquities, our flaws, our brokenness, our sins. The things that put a curtain between us and God, and that's why he's mocked, even though he's king. That's why, even though he has all power, he hangs powerless on a cross. That's why he could not come down from the cross to save himself, because if he did, he couldn't save you. Now, on the cross, the nails weren't, weren't there to hold Jesus in place. They were there because they were our nails that Jesus had taken on himself. Then why did Jesus condescend to us like this? It's so that the curtain could come down. And we could walk right up and approach God and know, and not question, does he love me? Because that question is answered by pointing to the cross. 
Do you see why Jesus condescended to us like this? Right? It's so that you and I could cry out to God and know we will not hear his silence. Right? Jesus got the silence of God we deserve on the cross so we could hear his voice in response. But even just beyond that, I mean, your own heart, do you, do you think we live in a world where, where that, that image Charles Simpleton saw on life, the, the cover of Life magazine, the images we saw from Syria this week, do you really want to consign yourself to a world where all these cries are ultimately to no one? Isn't there a reason we cry? Isn't there a reason we, we say to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No, we Christians, we enter the world of Jesus. And if you haven't entered the world of Jesus, if you're not a Christian, you should. Trust him, believe in him. The curtain has been torn into Jesus got the silence of God so you could get his salvation. Jesus was mocked so you could hear God's praise. Welcome, sons. Welcome, daughters. Jesus got the condemnation you and I deserve so that you could get, we could get the salvation that only he deserves. It's why he condescended to us, to me and to you, to take our burdens, to take our pain, to take our sufferings, to take the death that was coming to you and me so that we could have his life forevermore. Let us pray. Jesus, we approach you now as, as our substitute, the one who comes and offers to take both what's wrong with us and what's wrong with the world that weighs us down. So we come to you as our substitute and as our sacrifice. Help us to see you in our place. Help us to see you taking our burdens, our cries, our sufferings upon yourself. May we might live in the full confidence that you love us. May we never doubt that, God. And yet this week we will doubt that. And so every moment we are tempted to turn to something that's not you to find love and find meaning and find Joy, God, would you turn us back to the cross and remind us that there you won for us your love forevermore. And may we come and approach you with the Son of God at our side, the Son of God who was crushed for our iniquities and burdened with our sins so that we might know your life. God, we pray these things in his name. Amen.